Some years ago, I had an opportunity to visit Israel, and one of the aspects of the geography that I found fascinating is they have these things called tells everywhere, and I visited this one tell that was called Tel Megiddo. It's where they believe the last war, or Armageddon, is going to be fought. Now, these tells are actually mounds or hills, and, and they've been created by one civilization coming in and then being swept out by another and built on top of so that they build on top of one another again and again until it creates this hill-type structure. Uh, they were talking about Tel Megiddo, and they said, we believe that this tell is actually about 26 layers deep. Now just think about that. Some 26 civilizations over history, one after the other, coming and wiping the other out and building their kingdom or their empire on top of it. I mean, to me, that just sounds exhausting, Right? I mean, it seems like there's just this endless cycle of civilizations coming in one after the other, building on top of the next. And I was reminded of that as I was preparing for this text this morning, because you'll remember that we ended in chapter 1 with this question by the prophet Habakkuk. He's asking, Lord, shall Babylon go on swallowing up the nations forever without mercy, or are you going to intervene? And we know that historically, there's always going to be another Babylon. But the question is, is there coming a day where all of this insanity is going to stop? Well, we're right back in our Just God series in the book of Habakkuk this morning in chapter 2, verses 6 to 20, that were just read. Now, just to catch you up to speed, I've been working off the majority opinion, which dates the minor prophet during the reign of King Jehoiakim over Judah, somewhere around 608 to 597 B.C., uh, six centuries before Christ came. It was in a brief time, I think, that characterized uh, the, this, uh, this people as being both relatively peaceful and prosperous. It was right after Israel had been taken off into exile and God miraculously saved Judah, but just before Babylon would come in and carry off Judah into exile. So it's a unique time in Judah's history. Both God's people and their king, it seemed, had begun to move away from God. And this whole book is really a conversation that is erupting from the prophet to God and with God about sin and injustice that is happening uh, first amongst the Jews and then in the nation as a whole. You'll remember that Habakkuk begins his conversation with God saying, God, I see everywhere I look locally Jews sinning against Jews committing violence against one another. Are you going to do anything about it? And he does that day after day until we find that God responds. He speaks to, to, uh, to Habakkuk himself. And he says, I'm already raising up a people who are going to come and bring justice and judgment upon the Jews. It is Babylon, wicked Babylon. Now, there at that point, Habakkuk's thinking, God, the solution sounds worse than the problem. And so he asks God yet again, a, third, a second time, he speaks to him, and he says, but wait, will Babylon wipe out the nations, including your own people, the people who are beloved by you, who are the people of your covenant? Well, God begins his response to this question in Habakkuk 2, 2-5 that we looked at last time. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. The proud have an insatiable appetite for plundering the nations, they look like death and we'll see today that their end is destruction. In fact, that's what we're looking at in verses 6 to 11. We are looking at an episode where Habakkuk is promised a future great 
reversal. Judgment's coming, but there will be an end, and there will be a reversal where God will actually turn and judge Babylon, that instrument of justice. So if you notice in verse 6, look there with me really quickly. Uh, God says this. He says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? Now, I take all these that are going to be taunting to speak of that remnant from the nations that are going to survive Babylon and the violent treatment that they brought against humanity in verse 4. And God promises this remnant from the nations that they will taunt Babylon. Babylon will come violently and bloodthirsty for, uh, for them. They will seem seemingly invincible, but the victims will sing a victory song on the day of their demise. There is going to come a day of justice for Babylon. Now, if you're taking notes, this is a good thing to write down. Our big idea, it's this this morning, that God in heaven will one day flood the earth with the knowledge of His glory. There is coming a day when God in heaven will flood the earth with the knowledge of His glory. That's what we find at the center of this, this series of woes, five woes this morning. And we're going to look at these one by one, but let me pray for us as we begin. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we come before you, our, our hearts are in all kinds of places, I'm sure, Father. Father, there's some of us who are uh, overwhelmed by what's going on with the virus, fearful. Uh, some of us are stressed out by all the complications that have been created by the world that we live in right now. Uh, some of us are uh, overwhelmed by uh, finances. Uh, other things are vying for our attention this morning. But Lord, we ask this morning as we come before you that you would help our minds by the power of your Spirit to have space to hear and to see you, to hear your voice and your word. Lord, we pray that you would transform our hearts, that you would help us to love you more. And if there are those here who have never seen you, we pray that they would see you through your word this morning. It's the great name of your Son that we do pray. Amen. Now, we're going to look at these five woes, uh, one by one, beginning with, how about woe one? Does that sound like a good place to start at the beginning? Uh, woe one is this, taking human life for money. Woe to those who are taking human life for money in verses six to eight. Uh, just catch what God says again in these verses. He says this, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake will make you tremble? Then, then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, Habakkuk began by asking that question of God, how long are you going to allow injustice to continue? But here, notice, God takes this language, how long, and he flips it and says a reversal is coming. The time is up, the time is now. The day of judgment is going to arrive suddenly, without warning, and when it's there, you better be ready for it. And, and he uses here a financial metaphor. It's a financial picture to describe Babylon's violence to the nations. He envisions Babylon as a debtor who is loading up pledges. He's plundering the nations, taking their money, taking their stuff. Now, they've been consuming more and more, this nation, and they look like the original 
1%. They were the wealthy of the wealthy, and they were getting wealthier and wealthier as the nations were being led into death and poverty. Now, they've been consuming more and more, and the wealthy of the wealthy of their day is this nation. Now, interestingly, that word for debtors that you see in verse 7, it could also be creditors, and it comes from a, a word for bite. You might say, what does bite and creditor have in common? But if you've ever been in debt, then it makes a lot of sense, right? They give you these fees that they charge you for lending out money, and uh, they, sit, they literally will take their bite out of your possessions. Well, that's what's happening here. I think there's a play on words. In fact, even the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses this word for bite. The picture is that the more the Babylonians plunder, the more indebted they have become. Do you see it? They're tallying credits, but someone somewhere is tallying debits. Here, the plundered plunder their plunders. Try to say that three times real fast. It's really good for getting ready to speak. The, the plundered plunder their plunderers. See, the nations will take a bite out of Babylon. That's literally going to be payback that is coming for Babylon. Now, I find the reason why fascinating. He says in verse 8, why? Because, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. In fact, if you notice that verse 8, what it ends with, verse 17 will actually repeat it after the fourth woe. Now, there are a couple things that strike me about this statement, about the blood of man and the violence of the earth, the cities and all that dwell in them. For one, notice that it's the remnant of the nations, not just Judah, that we are told are going to revel in the destruction of Babylon. Now, you'll remember Habakkuk began by complaining about violence locally, Jews on Jews. And they were not keeping the Torah, which says that, you know, you're to love God and love your neighbor. They were violating that. They were full of violence instead of love and, and, and treating one another fairly. And Habakkuk was focused on justice in his local neighborhood. That's what he was focused on. That's what he was concerned with. But immediately, did you notice what God does with his vision? Look to the nations. I am not just a parochial God or deity like the, the gods of the nations. Those gods have zip codes. My zip code, I don't have one. They're all mine. He's a different kind of God than the God of the nation, gods of the nations. And here he says, I, I am concerned with global justice. My perfect justice filling the earth. But you have to ask why God cares about the nations who are not his covenant people, his special people. Uh, we find, as you look through the Bible, there's nowhere where I have found where the nations are condemned for not keeping the Torah. I, I, I don't find that. So what law did Babylon break if they're lawbreakers? That's uh, interesting. But there's a second thing that's interesting here with this verse. Some use this verse and they appeal to a kind of natural law that Babylon is guilty of that comes from creation. But I think the language here and throughout the text is actually echoing a covenant that God made with 
Noah in Genesis 9. In fact, Genesis 9 just seems to, to continuously have echoes that show up throughout this text. Uh, you'll remember what happens in Genesis 9. That's about uh, this righteous guy, Noah. You remember, God looks down and he finds Noah. All of the earth has become exceedingly corrupt and wicked. They're violent towards one another. And it gets so horrible, they don't even look like the image of God hardly anymore that he created them with. And he says, I've got to start this project over. And so he sends a great flood. But he tells Noah, righteous Noah, build an ark. He's like, what's an ark? It's a boat. What's a boat? We've never had. He's like, just build a boat. And, and I'm going to send a flood. And I'm going to save you from that judgment through this ark and in this moment we find that Noah and his family were saved from the judgment against sinful humanity and they began to become they became a new kind of Adam and Eve type existence and a new creation where God was beginning again and when Noah and his family stepped off that ark they stepped into a new creation and God made a covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. And it sounds a lot like the covenant that he made with Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1. But this time he is making provision for living in a world marred by the effects of the fall. You don't see that in Genesis 1 because it hasn't happened yet. But here we are in Genesis 9 and it's a different world. The descendants of Noah, humanity, they will still multiply and fill the earth in Genesis 9. But the animals that they are going to exercise dominion over, they are going to be terrified of them. And they, can't, they can eat of anything in, in this land, animals, all the things, the plants, but just not animals with the blood in them. God also institutes what we call the law of lex talionis, a, a, an eye for an eye. In verses 5 to 6, in Genesis 9, 5 to 6, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, your outline's getting crazy here, but just three things stand out to me about this text in Genesis 9, about the blood of man requiring another man to take his blood because he's been made in the, the image of God. First, God calls for the death of a murderer by mankind. That's biblical. Now, this might seem excessive, but it's actually a corrective. If you're chasing the storyline of Genesis, and Genesis 4, uh, Cain, God says anyone, he protects Cain after he, he murders Abel, and he says, I, I'm going to protect you, and anybody that, that kills you, I'm, I'm going to I'm come after him sevenfold. But by the time you get to one of his sons, Lamech, Lamech says, well, if the punishment of Cain was sevenfold, mine is going to be seventyfold. In other words, I'm not just going to take out you. I'm going to take out you, your kids, your grandkids, your pets. That's not justice. And so when God says, by the blood of a man, his blood shall be shed by another man, he is actually instituting a kind of fair justice. An eye for an eye is just. No more, no less. But also, second, God grounds this in the unique dignity of human life. Man is made in God's own image. That's why it is such a, a, a horrible consequence of murder. It is because of the value of humanity created in the image of God. He carries an unimaginable amount of dignity. See, taking a human life, if we understand the dignity of every human life and what it carries, regardless of IQ, regardless of disability or capability, age, gender, vocation, 
or even favorite football team, even if it's the, the Dallas Cowboys, and that's kind of a joke. Like, regardless of all of those things, every human carries an unimaginable amount of dignity because of the God who created them. Incalculable value of God. And that's why there's such a big penalty for it. But third, all of humanity is under the law. This seems to be what Amos 1.9 is speaking of when he speaks of the covenant of brotherhood that has been broken. It's the, the Noahic covenant that has been broken. Uh, David Dandronin is helpful here. He says this, Adam's original creation mandate per se does not continue except as refracted through the Noahic covenant in ways fit for a fallen but preserved world. Now we know this happened historically. This defeat of Babylon, their judgment in real time. This wasn't just something that would happen on the very last day. This is something that happened in real time. Uh, the Persians and Medes overtook Babylon in 539 BC. See, justice came here in the here and now for Judah and for the nations before the last day or the ultimate judgment that's coming. In fact, uh, O. Palmer Robinson, he writes here helpfully, he says, although the final balancing of the scales of justice must await eternity, time now will show greater equity than might at first be imagined. God is already at work bringing about justice. Not fully, but in part. Now maybe this woe about plunder reminds you of nations like Sierra Leone that was made popular in, in that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Do you remember that? Blood Diamonds? Talking about the exploits of Africa and the way that there were some warlords who were uh, taking the diamonds and uh, living off the, the blood of their, their kinsmen uh, to make enough money to uh, sort of uh, infuse their war efforts with, with uh, finances. And maybe you're thinking about some radical examples like that. And those would fit into that. In fact, we even need to think about our own nation and the ways that perhaps uh, we have injustice in the land that we need to pray for. But notice that Jesus says in Matthew 6, 32 to 33, when he's talking about money, he says in our hearts, we need to make sure that we're not like Babylon and we're not like worldlings, but that we are not anxious about anything, about what we wear or eat, because our, fatherly, our Father in heaven knows that we need them all. We have a Father that, that cares for us who are in Christ, His covenant people. Uh, and He tells His children, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all those things that you need, they'll be added to you. And Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. One pastor said that there are 500 verses in the Bible on prayer, less than 500 on faith, and over 2,000 on money. I haven't really checked that out, so you'll have to go check that out yourself. You can count and get back to me if those numbers are right. But I think it's needless to say the Lord has a lot to say about money, and I don't think it's because uh, he thinks that money is, is like all that great or all that bad, but that our hearts are all too prone to worship it, all too prone to put our confidence in it. You know, one thing that, that I have been super encouraged about in this season is one way that we can uh, know that we, we love God and we trust him is, I think, through our generosity. And I, I've just been so encouraged by our body and the way that y'all have been generous. 
Uh, the other day, Gia was trying to get food together uh, for a foster care Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, they had so much food that we, we ended up eating some of it for a week. I mean, you guys were just generous. Uh, we've had this harvest offering that we've taken, and you guys have been super generous. In fact, generous in some ways, we're still trying to calculate like what's going on. So we're super grateful for y'all's generosity. You know, we're so, gen- we're so grateful for so many of you that give week in and week out is a, a commitment to giving towards the things of the Lord and trusting that we're building a kingdom that is not passing away. We're building a kingdom that raws, maws, and, and fire cannot steal from us. We're building something that's eternal and that's going to last. I think that just shows that we're not living for this world where things do pass away. We're not like Babylon. See, Jesus says you can't serve God and money in Matthew 6, 24. And I'm just grateful for a church that is generous, that loves one another, and that shows increasingly so that we are not living for this world. But notice the second woe here. It's connected to this woe in some ways, and it's building off of the plundering. Notice second, the house built with evil gain cannot stand in verses 9 to 11. The the house built with evil gain cannot stand in verses 9 to 11. Now, this woe could speak either of the Babylonians or their king. I think both would be right, but but house, house is sometimes a word that's used to talk about like your earthly dwelling, the crib that you live in. Uh, other times, it's, it's used in another way. It's used as a kind of word for dynasty. Uh, you'll remember in 2 Samuel 7, David is talking to God and God promises to build him a house or a, a dynasty. Uh, and so either of those could be at play here. But notice the poetic justice that's going on in verses 9 to 11. He says this, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his house, his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Babylon was famed for for being materialistic. They were brutal. They also had uh, an investment in beauty. In fact, they built brilliant, towering buildings with massive walls to protect themselves and build a legacy of glory. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar would epitomize this reality uh, in the sense that he was the one who built one of the safest, most beautiful cities in the ancient world and surrounded it by a wall that was 136 feet thick. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a thick wall, right? Like you can drive cars on that. And, and, and each brick on the outer layer of this wall, he actually hi, had it inscribed with his name. I mean, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit much, right? Can you imagine if you went to my house and you were like, every brick, every stone, Josh. Hey, I was wondering, whose house is this? Just read the bricks. But I think Nebuchadnezzar was doing something even more here. I mean, he was building a kind of structure that he expected to last forever so that it would be a monument to his glory, to his dynasty, to his name. And his famed gardens hung in the Northeast Angel. I mean, this guy had one of the seven wonders of the world in his backyard. That's a big deal. And he named his palace the Marvel of Mankind. That's pretty high esteem for your crib. See, this king, he sought to build a house and a legacy of glory with the blood of the nations. 
But like Babel before him. Do you remember Babel back in Genesis? Who built up a tower to God as a monument to their self-sufficiency? This Babylon here in Habakkuk, they would build a perch that they thought rose safely outside of the reach of their enemies. They thought they were safe from all harm. This house, this dynasty. But even the house of Babylon and its kings, and its king built uh, these things. And yet, did you notice in these verses that the house itself joins in the taunting? The wood on the roof and the stones on the walls, they begin to creak with the kind of taunting of their demise. Even these stones and these walls begin to cry out, preparing for the fall of this great people, this great empire. They taught the downfall, they taught the downfall of the house or this dynasty. See, here we see a chain between the first and the second woe. Babylon plundered evil gain with the blood of the nations. Remember that? And here, notice, in this woe, he has sought glory apart from God and trusted in his wealth for safety. Now, what's beautiful is that we find that God encourages us to put our trust and confidence in something better than money, better than what Babylon did, something better than, than their money for safety. See, our high perch is actually in heaven with God. Uh, I love what Hebrews 13.5 says, speaking to Christians. Uh, this is a great uh, sort of verse for life, especially for living in the United States in, a, in a, a place that is just consumed with materialism. I mean, you can't even go to Costco without seeing an 85-inch television taunting you, right? Who needs an 85-inch television? I, I think I do. There's something wrong. And yet Hebrews 13.5 says this to Christians, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. If you have a 13 inch, that's okay. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see what's going on in these verses? It's really beautiful. He's saying, I don't want you to love money or put your trust in money. I don't want you to do it because I want you to trust God. I don't want you to give God-like trust to money. It will fail you. The future is ugly. It is not hopeful. The hope of God is in the fear of God and trusting God and worshiping Him alone. Here, Hebrews is saying there is a connection between the way you view money and the way you worship money and the way you trust God as your helper. So is your wallet your helper? Is your job your helper? Is God your helper? That's what protects us against the love of money. See, didn't Jesus promise his disciples in Matthew 28, 20? This beautiful promise? I don't have to worship money or put all my hope in money because why? Jesus is with me always, even to the end of the age. He's not abandoned me or forsaken me. Take note, trust in money for safety is a spiritual issue. Contentment with times of plenty and times of want comes from a confidence that Jesus has promised He will never leave or forsake us, that He will always provide for us. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. And as Hebrews says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. 
My heart trusts in God's provision for me, not hoarding wealth. Now, I'm not saying here that we don't need to invest or save, but I'm saying that our hearts can put undue confidence in our possessions. What are good ways to, to recognize that? Well, maybe you're one of those folks that has a retirement that you're checking like three times a day, and your heart is either happy or sad based on where the lines go. I'm not saying that sometimes it can't be devastating, but it, are, you, are you prone to just living based on the ebbs and flows of the stock market? Do you have a job where you think to yourself, if you don't make this much this year, then life just doesn't have purpose anymore? Are you willing to sacrifice whatever it takes with your family to make more money? Are you willing to abandon the church because you need to work a few more hours? Now, these are hard decisions, and sometimes you, you need to work a few more hours. But the question is, where's our heart in all of these conversations? Do we have to live in a certain neighborhood, in a certain house, to be safe? Because we are more safe if we're in the right place rather than understanding where we are with God. Well, we can move on to, to woe three. I think we're sufficiently convicted. Three, God did not create humanity for worldly cities that pass away in verses 12 to 14. God did not create humanity for worldly cities that pass away in verses 12 to 14. This is the, the third woe. I think it kind of sits as sort of a, a central focal point in these woes. And look at verse 12 and what he says to open up. He says this, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city in iniquity. Now, I think that this building of towns or cities speaks of civilizations, maybe even empires that have been built with blood or sin. That's Babylon. Babylon would build the great empire of their day. They would conquer the known world. The peoples here in this moment are going to ask a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question to the great Babylon on this new day that's coming of reversal. And we find it in verse 13. They say this, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Now, the obvious answer to this rhetorical question is yes. It is from the Lord. It is from the Lord of hosts or heavenly armies that these people work and work, but their labor, it will end in the fire. What is the work? It's heaping up, plundering peoples for glory, making glory for themselves on the blood and the backs of others. They will weary themselves for nothing or vanity. It's like a vapor. All these things that they've been living for that seem so substantive and meaningful, it's vanity at the end of their days. It's kind of like a mist, a vapor. You ever taken a, a squirt gun or maybe been at the, the barber shop and had them like shoot you with the water because you left too much gel in your hair and they have to like loosen it up? Yeah, that's me. Sometimes it takes like 12. But you notice how quickly it just disappears? Like it's there and it's gone. And this is what they say all of the building of Babylon is. It's a vapor, a vapor of glory. It's there and then it disappears. It's gone forever. See, that's what a life of self-reliance and, and a human creature seeking glory at the expense of other image bearers apart from their glorious creator leads to always. It's a vapor. It's destined for fire. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon sought glory apart from God even as an instrument of justice in Yahweh's hands. Just think about that. God's using him. He doesn't even know it. 
And then he's going to be held accountable for the way that he lived in a way that was not glorious to God, that was not loving his neighbor. And this is the end of the pursuit of pleasure and glory apart from God. I take these verses as pointing to the last day. I think this verse has an eschatological kind of view to it. If you remember, it sounds a lot like 2 Peter 3.10. You remember 2 Peter? He talks a lot about the end. He says there, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. See, when God shows up on the last day, there will be lots of worldly human glory that disappears. There will be a lot of participation trophies that are just gone. Sorry, just not there anymore going to be a lot of trophies that have been won for the glory of mankind that will never be seen again. And there will be lots, I believe, of lowly faithful saints revealed as more glorious than ever imagined. Remember, Habakkuk just asked if Babylon would go on mercilessly killing nations forever. Is there ever going to be an end to the terror? Catch God's response in verse 14. I love this. He says this, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an image. You see it? God in heaven, his glory filling the earth, flooding out. I love this image. That's where history is going. Have you ever wondered, like, man, I wish I knew what the future looked like. I think I might live differently. Like, man, I wish I would have invested in Apple. If I knew where that was going, man, I would have been on that train a long time ago. And yet, here we know where the story of history is going. It's a a kind of end that ought to shape everything if we really understand, believe, and trust it. The end is the whole earth being filled with Josh's glory. Is that what it says? No. It says it's the whole earth being filled with the glory of God. Let me just ask, how many of us are living as though this is the reality that we are preparing for even now? Or is it that we are preparing the world for the glory of Josh and the glory of all of us to be known? No, it's about the glory of God filling the earth. See, Babylon's glory is not the end. It might have felt like it for a minute. In fact, everybody might have thought that for a minute. Other Babylons, they would arrive. Persia, Greece, Rome, etc. We'd be filled with this thought that, well, maybe they will be the great glorious nation that will sort of rise up and have glory forever. But this verse seems to look to the eschaton, the last days beyond every Babylon that would come. Babylon's labors, they will be burned up and forgotten, but God's glory will flood the earth. Another flood is coming. Flood came in Noah's day, another flood is coming, a flood of the knowledge of the Lord and His glory that will fill it. I think Habakkuk actually in this verse is combining a couple of verses. Uh, Numbers 14, 21, where we are told, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It's Numbers. It'll be filled with the glory of the Lord. And then Isaiah eleven nine 9 adds knowledge to the equation saying, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so here Habakkuk brings both of them into play and says, uh, it's going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. What's interesting is in Isaiah 11, right after he says that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, do you know who he begins to start talking about? 
new David. On that day when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that new David is going to come from the root of Jesse. He says in verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So where is this glory going to be seen? It's going to be seen in this, this seed that's coming, this root that's coming from Jesse. In other words, this promise seems to have implications for the nations when David's greater son, or Christ, would arrive. God's glory would be known throughout the earth through his son. That's where we would see it clearly. I love this. Nebuchadnezzar, he would labor and force others to labor for his glory to make a name for himself. Fire would consume his labors. So will every work be consumed. Every labor that does not seek God's glory above all others, it will be consumed. It will not last forever. In fact, the Westminster Divines, looking at verses like these, they, they tell us, this is what the chief end of man is. Do you want to know what the chief end of humanity is? It's kind of a big claim, right? Like, chief end of humanity? Okay, I'm listening. What is it? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we have been created for. Not to glorify ourselves, not to make glorious our jobs or even our kids in an ultimate way, but to glorify God and to enjoy Him and the good gifts that He has blessed us with. See, the earth will not be filled with Babylon's glory, but the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is not a king that seeks to make a name for himself, but a king who humbled himself to the cross for his people that they might rest from their toil and labor as unto the Lord. It's a good king. He's not like the kings of the nations or of this earth. He is a king from heaven. In fact, we get this beautiful image in Philippians 2 that speaks of him coming down from heaven to us, condescending, humbling himself even to the point of the cross, and then God raises him up from the dead. And, and Paul ends in Philippians 2, 9-11, saying this of Jesus, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, being Jesus, and he has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father now does that sound like everybody's kind of paying attention to Jesus on the last day yeah it's not just that it's flooding the earth it's like the heavens the earth and things under the earth did I miss a spot like I think everybody's going to be looking at the glory of Jesus Christ bowing the knee to him that's where history is going no one will rob God of his glory and that of Christ now don't miss this I believe that the Bible teaches that your work in this life matters in other words you might hear something like this and like all the works get burned up and you might say well maybe my works don't Matter. God calls us to glorify Him in everything in us, including our works. He says whether we eat or drink, we do it to the glory of God. Our whole lives are about God's glory. But I want you to be reminded that we as humans, we were created for the purpose of exercising dominion on earth. And that includes both the relations that we have and the vocations that we labor in. God has created you for such, in such a way that you can exercise dominion bringing him glory. When we work, we have two ditches that we can fall into. 
And maybe you've fallen into one of these or both, depending on the day of the week. When you're working, you can fall into one ditch, which is idolatry, where you worship your work. And the other is idleness, where you think work doesn't matter and you just kind of give up and you don't do anything. You're lazy. I can have days where I'm either. But we need to be reminded that we can worship our labors and see our identity in our work rather than the God who created us. Be distracted from the God who made us, our creator God. Catch us. We can and should glorify God with our jobs. Whether we're an electrician or a teacher or a preacher, we ought to work as unto the Lord. We are working before God, not man. See, godly electricians, teachers, and preachers all reflect God's glory, and they testify to Christ. So maybe you're thinking like, man, I wish I could have like, worked for God. Uh, I should have been a preacher or taught in a seminary. But God has called you in your vocation to image and glorify Him in the way that you're working at your job. Are you doing it in a way that glorifies Him? Are you making His name known? You will make His name known in places that I want, that our, our professors won't, that our Sunday school teachers can't. See, we lay down our lives humbly in our vocations that Christ might be exalted. Now, how do you know if you're out for God's glory at work or you're building your own little empire? Well, we're not ambitious for our namesake, but for the name of Jesus. So do we have a, a good reputation at work? Do we look different at our particular jobs because we're Christians? In other words, could somebody look at me and say like, yeah, you're a banker, but you're a banker in a way that everybody else is a banker, and there's nothing really ethically that looks different about you, morally that looks different about you, uh, uh, temperament-wise that looks different about you because you're a Christian. Are we present with our family or absent even when we're home? Are you engaged? Are you looking to exercise dominion in your home such that it's bringing forth life? Are we present and serving in our local church? Are we giving generously to our local church and seeking to be a blessing to those around us? You know, I, I just this week uh, had a young, successful, uh, he's here, so I'll say good-looking guy, uh, really eligible bachelor guys, uh, ladies out there. Um, but this guy called me up and he was just like, hey, I, I just I quit my job. And, um, and my first thought was like, man, you don't quit a job before you have a job. And I think there's some wisdom to that. But he said, you know, like I've been praying about this for a while, like over a year, seeking counsel. And I feel like in my job, I've been, I've been just sort of wearing myself away. I'm not healthy. I don't feel healthy. And also, I want to make more disciples and be made a better disciple. Talk about convicting a pastor. You know, my first thought was quickly corrected by this brother trusting his life with Jesus Valuing what he values. Man, at least in that call, he brought glory to God before me. See, God's dignity comes from his God, not his job. And if you struggle with idolizing your job, I think 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15 is a really good verse. It says, On the day of the Lord, the fire will test all of your work, and some Christians will watch many vain labors burn. Catch me. Many of the things today that we live for, the praise of men in this world, 
Women in this world, kids in this world, we long for that praise. And, and many of those things on the last day, they are not going to be worthwhile or valuable or make it through the fire. See, the other danger is idleness at work, though. And maybe that's you. You think that your labors in this life don't matter because your opportunities are not as great as somebody else or as great as you had hoped or you'd rather sleep or because you're just waiting to get to heaven. Well, I think 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15 is a good verse for you because it says that God will reward those whose work withstands the fire. So work is under the Lord, trusting that your words are not vain in Christ. In Christ, they are lasting. They last forever. Uh, notice a fourth woe here, though. The cup of wrath will drink wrath. Verses 15 to 17. The cup of wrath will drink wrath. Now, tell me if this imagery reminds you of a story in the Bible. Here's what he says. In verses 15 to 16, he says this. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Now, there are a couple of biblical images that I'm reminded of here. The first is in Jeremiah 25, 15. Uh, there we find that God tells Judah, he says, take from my hand this cup of the wrath of the wine of wrath and make all nations to whom I send drink it then when you get to, to Jeremiah 51 7 he I think tells us who this cup is he says Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand the cup of his wrath that it was he sent out to be drunk by the nations see Babylon was this golden cup of God's wrath coming to the nations including Judah but here notice that it's Babylon that will drink from the cup do you see it they were the cup and now they're going to drink from the cup Second, it sounds like Noah, doesn't it? Do you remember the story of Noah again, what happened after the covenant? He grew a vineyard. He's back in a garden, right? Garden imagery. But he immediately gets drunk off of the fruit of the land. I don't know if the new creation is starting off so well. And then in Genesis 9.22, we're told Ham, his son, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, his brothers, they responded by covering up Noah. But Noah, when he understands what's happened, he actually curses Ham. Now, it, it seems like a, a pretty significant thing to do for a kid that just said, hey, dad's like drunk and naked. But some think that this looking on his nakedness, both in, that, in Genesis 9 and here in Habakkuk, is actually a kind of euphemism that's speaking of sexual sin, maybe homosexuality in Genesis 9. In fact, O. Palmer Robinson says uh, this may and likely speaks of homosexuality, the kind of thing that Paul condemns in Romans 1, 26 to 27. There he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. See, see here, I, I think what's happening is Babylon has led the nations in sexual sin, but they would drink the cup of God's wrath and be exposed themselves. 
They would be exposed and, and they would be shown to be uncircumcised. They did not carry the mark of the covenant people of God. So he quotes again the line from verse 8 in verse 17. And he says, For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What's interesting here, though, is notice that he, he speaks of Lebanon. Now, some say that, that Lebanon speaks of Israel. That makes sense. Uh, it's, it, we see that elsewhere. Lebanon was also famous for those tall, glorious cedar trees. You know, California, they're, they're famous for the redwoods. And, and, and Lebanon was famous for their cedars. In fact, some of them were used to build a house for the Lord, the temple. But here, I think I'm also reminded of Isaiah 10. You'll remember that these cedars were chopped down in judgment by Assyria for their sin. But then later we find that God makes a promise in Isaiah 60, 13, saying there's coming a day when the glory of Lebanon will come to beautify the temple of the Lord again. And he says, I will make a place of my feet glorious. Well, here we see that God promises that Babylon's bloodthirsty pursuits of glory would end in shame. That's Babylon's end in these verses. Now, don't miss this. There is a great day that is coming. Y'all ready for that day? It's going to be a good day. A good day for the people of God. It's a great day when Jesus is going to come to bring perfect and true justice to earth. Now, you might feel like as you hear this this morning, you're, you're a non-Christian and you're wondering, what does this have to do with me? Well, for one thing, I think what we find here and elsewhere in the Scriptures is that all of humanity is obligated to obey God as His creature, as His creation. He is your creator, and you owe Him your allegiance whether or not you recognize Him as God. He has created you. And so, as you think about it, you, you might want to think about, like, well, what does this God have to say to me? And maybe this morning you're thinking, I, I don't think I really need God. It feels like I'm winning at life. Things are going pretty well without Him. I don't know why I need God. In fact, I'm doing well at work. Family seems to be all right. And I don't have Jesus. But everything in this world, according to the Scriptures, it's going to change in the blink of an eye. And that could happen today, before Jesus comes back for you. You've probably experienced those kinds of turns in life. But it ultimately is going to happen on the last day, when Jesus is going to come back and bring justice. He's going to bring justice for all those who have not put their faith in Christ. All of them will face the wrath of God. No one outside of faith in Jesus Christ is going to survive that fiery judgment that's coming to judge the works of men. Only those who step by faith into the ark of Christ will survive that day. So if you're a non-Christian, the eternal fiery ending is going to last forever. That's what God says in His Word. There is no end to the fiery judgment that's coming. Are you ready for that day? Have you prepared for it? Are you living in light of it? If you've not put your faith in Christ, let me just encourage you, don't leave today without putting your faith in Christ. Talking to me or any of a number of Christians in this room who would love to share with you how you can come to Christ. Because here's the good news. You notice that Babylon had to drink of the, the cup of the wrath of God. Well, there is one who has come for you to drink that cup for you. It's Jesus Christ. At Matthew 26, 39, Jesus is about to face the cross where He is going to bear the wrath of God for all those who would put His faith in Him. 
And it's in that verse that he says to his father as he's praying, Jesus says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup of your eternal, infinite wrath, let it pass if it's possible. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I think he's saying that in his, his humanity. If it were possible, I, I would... I don't want to drink of the wrath of God. I don't think anybody wants to drink of the wrath of God if they have the choice. And you do have a choice. It's whether or not you put your faith in Christ. See, Jesus drank of the cup of God's wrath so that you don't have to. So let me encourage you to put your faith in Him. And when you do, you will become forgiven and part of the people of God, destined for an infinite eternity with Him forever in glory. But notice, woe five, quickly. Idols are dumb, God's in heaven. Idols are dumb, God's in heaven. That's what we find in verses 18 to 20. Notice what he says in verses 18 and 19. He says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise, catch, catch this, <clears throat> can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. Now, speaking of this verse, Peter Craigie writes, Idolatry is essentially the worship of that which we make rather than of our maker. And that which we make may be found in possessions, a home, a career, an ambition, a family, or a multitude of other people or things. We worship them when they become the focal point of our lives, that for which we live. And as a, the goal and center of human existence, they are as foolish as any wooden idol or metal image. Idols are literally, in this verse, dumb. They can't speak. They can't teach. See, Babylon built idols to speak for them to God and from God to them and trusted and lived for them. But those gods will not be able to bear up on the last day. See, the idols are voiceless. They're breathless. They, they don't have life in them. It's interesting, the, the word for breath is, is ruh, which is the same word for, for spirit. And, and, and here you find that uh, there is no spirit in these idols, but there is a spirit in man. Man who was breathed life into by God in creation, who was created to image his maker uniquely. And this, this creature that was made as the pinnacle of God's good creation to image him is now worshiping these vain idols but notice in verse 20 what he says but the Lord Yahweh the covenant God of Israel he is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silent before him of course the temple usually refers to Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem but the earthly temple is where God resided with his people and it was only a copy that earthly temple of his, earth, of his heavenly temple F.F. F. Bruce, speaking of this, says that the heavenly temple is what he believes is in view. Here pointing to similarity with Psalm 11.4, where we find in Psalm 11.4, the psalmist say this, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Do you see it? God's glory is far above the earth and far above Babylon. They were trying to put them out of reach of danger and they don't understand that the problem isn't coming from beneath but above. The problem they need to deal with is with God. And maybe that's you this morning. You think that all of your problems are here below but you haven't dealt with the issues that you have with God. 
You have a God in heaven to whom you owe your life and your breath, and you're not living for Him. Well, let me just encourage you, put your faith in this God today. Because when you worship something less than God, you become less worship. You become less human. In doing so, you exchange your glory for shame and life for death. You treat other humans as less than image bearers. And the God of heaven silences the taunts of man's with his glorious presence. And he one day will do that with you. Are you ready for that day? He is the one true God. Let us be silent and in awe before our just creator, God. Let's pray.